You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hey, Jordan. My girlfriend and I both work in creative fields, and we currently don't have any kids, and we're both pretty good at taking care of money. This is a letter from Jeremiah. That's a pseudonym. It's one of our producers reading his letter. Both of us have lived in Toronto for most of our lives, and we've seen the price of real estate skyrocketing to just crazy levels. And we're honestly starting to worry if getting a home in the city we love is even possible. We've read stories online about people pooling resources to purchase property together, like two or three families purchasing a house or several generations of a family opting to live together under the same roof. I'm wondering if that could even be a viable path for homeownership for us and what financial considerations should be made before entering into one of these co-ownership agreements. It is a great question and honestly, an idea I'd never even considered. Co-ownership is almost exactly what it sounds like. People combine their resources to purchase a home which they own and maintain as a unit. Homes in cities like Toronto and Vancouver and, hell, basically every city in the country right now have become not just expensive, but out of reach for so many people. In fact, a recent Canadian survey found that more than 60% of those who don't already own a home have already given up on the idea of ever owning one. So, like Jeremiah, a lot of people want to know, is co-ownership a good option in this economy? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and welcome to In This Economy, a show that helps you understand the systems that create our money problems. From grocery bills to mortgage renewals and everything in between, we'll help you unpack how we got here and what you can do about it. In each episode, we'll start with a real person facing a real financial challenge in their life, and then we'll find an expert who knows that particular area of the economy intimately and can explain the driving factors behind the problem, the costs associated with it, and hopefully offer, if not solutions, then options, pivots, things you can do, even in this economy. When Jeremiah says that Owning a home seems out of reach? He's not wrong. At this moment, in this market, it is rare to feel otherwise. 1.3 million renters in the city who have credit scores of 680 or above and are making over $65,000 a year actually can't afford to buy in the city. That's Paramal Gosai, a Toronto real estate professional who specializes in facilitating co-ownership sales. We have a housing crisis. The doom is not that this is going to fall apart, but that it's a, it's a go-kart out of control. And nobody is willing to stop it because there's too much money to be made. And that's his business partner and fellow Toronto real estate expert, Leslie Gaynor. Together, they founded Husmates, an app that connects folks who are seeking partners in real estate co-ownership. And they're right. We've been in a housing crisis. At this point, it's hard to remember a time 
when the word housing wasn't followed by the word crisis. Prices have soared 23% in the greater Toronto area in the past year. Minimum wage workers all across Canada are losing ground in the struggle to afford rent. High interest rates and labour shortages are slowing the construction of new rental homes at a time when we need to build more to meet looming demand. Here's Leslie again. I think one of the biggest mistakes we made was long ago when we started to financialize homes and home ownership. And we took it outside of the realm of it being a necessity to a property value and allowing people just to amass wealth. And then in addition to that, we started to use it as a vehicle for pension funds, for real estate investment trusts for the world of wealth building outside of the individual. And once we start that system, the lending system, the interest rate gathering, all of that, we end up creating a system that became very financialized. Where did we miss the boat on that? Was there a chance where we could have done something, and here I obviously mean uh, governments at the provincial or federal level, where we could have done something to mitigate that kind of approach to housing and real estate, but we didn't. My gut tells me that had we kept it out of the hands of the money-making machines, so for example, as soon as it became clear that property was going to be a big money maker. We allowed developers to come in and there's no competition. We couldn't compete with them. We allowed, you know, the real estate investment trust funds to come in and buy up swaths of property. We made policy decisions that took down small six unit, eight unit, 10 unit, you know, rental units and demolished them and allowed for big residential. We did not protect our rent geared to income. We did not protect, you know, any of the systems in place that allowed people to coast in a low income economy where wages were not growing at the rate of everything else. Yes, on a federal level, there are the lip service being given to housing, 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 housing. But when you look at the actual decisions that are being made, they are not impacting the need for purpose-built, affordable rental units. All of the talk about housing is great, but the decisions that are being made are not putting units on the market that are in any way controlled. Perimel, I want to ask you about the way we've traditionalized homeownership in Canada and probably in the United States as well, which is, you know, one family, one home. It's the nuclear family. It's mom and dad and some kids. How unique is that when you look elsewhere around the world at how people own homes? That's so interesting. I love this question. I'm South Asian myself. I come from a long tradition of what we call joint family housing. What does that look like in practice? So in practice, I mean, you can actually see it in practice even right now in places like Brampton and Scarborough in the, the heavy South Asian populations in and around the Toronto suburbs where the parents who've had three kids Let's call them sons because traditionally the sons live at home. They go back to India, marry their wives. They, the wives come and live 
there. The children all grow up in the same household. You all support each other united as a front in one household to help with carrying costs, help with cooking, like all sorts of things. And I'm not saying that this is like some sort of idealistic way of living. Like, trust me, it is replete with problems. But this notion that everyone has to find their the person they love and then they have to buy a house with that person they love and they have to raise kids with that person they love in their white picket fence in the suburbs somewhere. Like that notion doesn't exist amongst most South Asian people and people from other cultures. In fact, if you look at um, Portuguese and Italian cultures here in Toronto, they've been doing that for a long time as well. So there are lots of cultures and examples where housing isn't this like, isolated act that one must have to do or a measure of success. Your success can be defined as a group. Since 2018, Harmel and Leslie have helped 175 people into co-ownership arrangements. They estimate that's over 100 million bucks worth of real estate in the GTA. How we've positioned it is a bit of a dating app for people who want to own housing together. Housemates is actually quite similar to, let's say, Tinder or Hinge. First, you create a profile, and then you browse the site comparing potential co-owners in your area. When you see someone you like, you know how this works. You show interest by hitting the match button on their profile. And if the interest is mutual, you start chatting about a potential partnership. If people are willing to do this with friends and take the risk of getting into debt with friends or family members, why can we not make the jump to strangers if we have the right technology in place and all the right measures in place? And often, actually, we get the response of, you know, I would totally not do this with my brother or sister, but I would absolutely do this with a stranger because I want to protect my family relationships. But when I get into a co-ownership relationship that reflects more a partnership or shareholders agreement that has clearly defined parameters, I feel more comfortable. The world of wealth building does this all the time. I mean, companies get together and bring on shareholders. It's not like you, you're not in relationship with all of these people who you are investing your money with. The parameter here that stretches people's brain cells is you have to have relationships coded by an agreement, but you might have to interact with somebody on some level. And people get really twisted about that. But when you dissect it and say, Like anything, there's an agreement. And here you go. Here's the agreement. Here are the rules you have to live by. You live in a condo, you have to abide by the bylaws. You can't be breaking the rules just because you feel like it, because it's my condo and I'll do whatever I want with it. Like, it's so not that much of a stretch. But when you put it as, oh, it's an app, like a dating app to buy real estate, people go, oh my God, that's nuts. But if you actually take it and say, well, it's kind of like, finding a shareholder, making an investment, mm-hmm. having a set of rules and regulations that give you the parameters, right? If you did this with your romantic partners that you buy property with, I guarantee you there'd be a lot of less money spent in divorce courts fighting over the asset. Hmm. Because we actually spend so much time with people going, here's what you need to know about it. So I think it's so important the way that it gets compared to what we're doing in the real world. It's an extension of something that already happens, 
It just means that you might be living, or hopefully you're living in a bit of a community guided by a set of rules and regulations. Okay, so can you just walk me through the process? Like what happens after you've matched with someone on the site? So um, once they've matched, uh, they they approach us. Uh, you know, we, we don't handhold the matching. Like we let it all happen organically on the app. When somebody is ready to be like, hey, I've had coffee a few times with Jordan. I'm feeling really good. Can I come and talk to you in Parmel? Let's see and myself will then take them through our actual co-ownership process, which is usually takes anywhere from two to three kind of consulting sessions. And they're anywhere from an hour to three hours each, depending on how much time folks need. We understand that this is not something that people are just going to jump into right away. So we, we have these casual conversations. We actually try to outline and bring everyone's fears on the table right off the bat. It's one of the first questions we ask. Tell us your fears and how can we start unpacking all of it? Um, we actually have a workbook, you know, about a 120 page workbook that at the end of that first session, we give the people the workbook and we actually give people exercises to do. And, you know, some of the exercises are like, okay, well, what if you really are in conflict over painting the door yellow? Um, what happens if I want a 24 karat gold seat on my toilet, but you don't? who pays for it, all the really nuanced things that are important. What happens if you die? What happens in the case of disability? What happens in the case of divorce? And, and we often start with, don't even talk to us about the bricks and mortar. Do not talk about the house. Why not? Because the house is not important right now. What is important is your connection and your ability to live in a co-ownership arrangement in a house, let's say in Toronto, in a duplex, and should these types of things come up, how are you guys going to govern yourselves? And that is critical to us. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I think the other important piece in this is, is that we're not functioning outside of the traditional world of mortgages and lending at this moment, right? In Canada in particular, we have a very conservative banking system. Our chartered banks are governed very carefully, very closely by legislation. They act as a unified front for the most part with little tiny bits of difference where they can lend and do things for special products. But that means that these buyers are up against the traditional lending products. Mm -hmm. And in those traditional lending products, the importance of what Paramel saying about the getting the bricks and mortar being the last thing is I'm going into debt with you. Yeah. Right. And unlike a big corporation and a big shareholders agreement of what I said before, I have to really understand what that means. Because in Canada, one title, one mortgage, not several, not divisible. It's you and I are all 100% responsible for that debt. And the bank don't care. They go to that bank account. They don't care if all four of us have put our money in. If it's not there, we're all in trouble. Tell me what that looks like, borrowing money in the traditional way with a group of people. Who goes to the bank and how do you do it? They all have to go to the bank. Anyone can, any mortgage person, bank, broker, can actually take an application. It's all about risk mitigation. It's like, okay, yeah, 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 they've all got good incomes. Yeah, yeah, they're all, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, they're all insurable. Great. Here's your mortgage. It's not, it's not that complicated. And from the bank's point of view, worst case scenario, they own a house. 
Well, in the worst case scenario, they own an asset that the bank will only lend up to a certain amount. So the bank always knows it's going to get its money yeah. back and get interest on top of that. Th- this is kind of a simple math problem here, but how much can partnering with people uh, on a home increase your buying power and increase where you're able to look, how much you're able to spend? What do you aim for? I mean, you know, the more the more income you have on the table, the better, right? I mean, the more income you have, the more loan you can support. The more that that people bring resources to the table, the larger you can have as a down payment. And when you need $200,000 minimum to look at a house over a million, which is not even a starter home in the city of Toronto, $200,000 in liquid cash. So any amount of combinations, or I would say, will get people further. Does it have to be split equally? It doesn't. Yeah, and you can do some simple math on, let's say, like the average house of a nice duplex in Toronto is 1.5 million. And let's say we're splitting that in half by like 750,000. What we often do is like compare what you can buy in a condo space for 750,000 as opposed to like a house with a backyard where you might have, you know, a thousand square feet each, but you have a lot more autonomy over your space. Like, that's the real exciting part about this. You know, you you don't have to be stuck in a condo. I always think of it as like a prescription, right? Go to a physician and say, I've got this, this, and this, and then they try and the same thing with a property. It's like, okay, you've got a really great income, but no down payment. You've got a huge down payment, but not a great income. Oh, you've got bruised credit, but you've got $300,000 from an inheritance. Okay, let's get creative. And let's look at how these pieces can work together. And they don't always have to be the shiny, you know, the, like everyone equal and everyone has the same thing. You can be like, wow, we'll pull on your strength for this and your strength for this and your ability to do this. And then you create an intention and that intention then goes to the bricks and mortar and you make it happen. The last thing I want to ask you about um is for people who have been listening to this conversation and are intrigued and are thinking of checking out Husmates or thinking of gathering friends together to maybe do this. What do they need to keep in mind? What are the, you know, two or three key things you would tell them? You need to understand this as you embark on this. I think they'll need to understand that you will have to get financially naked with your partners, right? Any kind of hidden cobwebs in your financial history or, I don't know, criminal activity. Right. All of that will come up and you have to be okay with that. And Leslie, you've been doing this for an awfully long time. You're kind of a bit of a pioneer in this field. What are the three or two key things that you've learned over time? What makes it work? What makes it fall apart? You have to be a person who is willing to compromise Because you can't always have everything your own way, especially when you live in community of any kind. You have to be a person who understands that conversation is absolutely imperative when it comes to making a household work. So good communication, good conversation, a commitment to compromise, and patience. So, you know, my big thing is we call it the anti-tsunami clause. You can't run into the living room and go, the house is on fire and everyone has to get out. You have to be calm and come in and say, look, I just got a great job in, you know, Vancouver. And it would appear that for my life, I need to move. You can't cause a crisis because other people's lives and livelihoods are dependent on your ability 
to do things rationally and well. So we set principles. Here's the principle of our governance. You know, I will come to you with, I will give you time to digest. I will give you time to respond. I will give you time to strategize. So that's why, as, as Erwell says, it's so, so important that the bricks and mortar are the thing that kind of comes at the end. It's the end of the train. All the things that you do before that will make you successful. This all sounds great in theory, but does it really work for people? I mean, it is one thing to set out principles for living with a couple or a family, but does this level of preparation inevitably lead to conflict? I wanted to hear from someone actually living in one of these arrangements. My name's Craig. I'm 35. I work in public policy and government, and we have a rough household income of about $160,000. In 2021, Craig and his partner bought a house in Toronto with another couple. So we managed to find a great house in the West End of Toronto. It's a three-story duplex with a basement. And uh, my partner, Alex, and I shared the main floor basement unit uh, that has two bedrooms and one and a half baths. And uh, Mike and Heather live upstairs in another two-floor unit uh, that has two bedrooms. And it had a garage, but right now we are transforming that garage into a laneway house. How does the contractual stuff work? And I'm really here interested in, and I think everybody is, in the practical realities of it when you're engaging in this, whether you're doing it with, in your case, you know, a couple who are good friends of yours or, you know, people you're entering into a business arrangement with. Like, this is a massive purchase. How do you sort out everything from who takes out the garbage, who's responsible for maintenance, who mows the lawn? What happens if there's an accident? Like all that stuff would seem seem challenging to me. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to have a lot of really deep and emotionally intelligent conversations together. Uh, In the process of while we were looking, we went through a spreadsheet and talked through all these different questions of You know, what happens if someone breaks up or dies? And uh, how do we want to handle the the running of the house in different roles? And so we answered those questions as a group and then worked with the lawyer to draft our own co-ownership agreement uh, where we lay all these things out, including what the timelines would be for selling if someone wanted to sell and how we will handle and resolve things. So we have monthly meetings where we run through an agenda to make sure we're all on the same page and can make some big decisions together. And then we have an annual retreat to sort of lay out the vision for the year ahead and talk through any of those bigger picture issues that we want to, to live with, uh, how we want to handle the house. So interesting, because Leslie and Parmal told me that, you know, it's a lot like running a company together and you're mentioning meetings and business retreats. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good frame of mind to put it in. And I think, quite frankly, these are the kind of structures and conversations that anyone who owns a house with someone else, even if it's just your partner, uh, should be having. But it's even more necessary when there's more people at the table. And, uh, and it's that open communication that has helped ensure that, you know, any issues that arise, we're able to sort out and talk through. And uh, we each have our own clear rules that we know that we need to handle. And that sort of structure, I think, really enables the, the community living to work well. Can you tell me about a time or maybe the first time that something came up and you all kind of realized like, oh, shit, that's not in the contract. We never thought about that. Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, to give examples of some of the things that have come up that have been challenging, 
uh, have included like negotiating what we wanted to do with uh, the front garden or backyard. You know, who, who wanted to take responsibility for it, what we were going to plant, how we were going to design and manage that space. There were also some conversations around, you know, when, when things happen, like when our boiler went on the fritz during our first winter and trying to navigate, you know, who's going to take responsibility for finding the maintenance person and how urgent of a priority is it? And for some of us, it was more urgent than others. Uh, and so trying to get on the, on the same page there and make sure that we could get that repaired and that we you know, had heat restored to the house was also uh, an issue that we had to work through together. What about when someone screws up? You know, you live with somebody as a partner in a romantic relationship or otherwise, and there's a whole relationship there that needs to be maintained, and it's based on a constant kind of give and take and compromise or whatever, and, and you know, you F up and it's, I'm sorry, honey, or whatever it is. What happens in this situation when it's a relationship that you value, but also, like, it's a business? Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> We all treat it as, you know, coming to each other as humans and friends first and accepting that all of us are going to make mistakes at various points. And I think our main mindset is just trying to learn from it and live with it. And if you don't have that attitude, if you're going to be a lot more rigid and, you know, a lot less forgiving uh, when things happen, that maybe this isn't the right model for you because, you know, things are going to happen and you need to be prepared to roll with the punches and, uh, and figure out how you're going to work together to solve the problem instead of just spending your time litigating blame of, of whose fault it was. You mentioned it briefly, but before you go, I want to know about the exit strategy. Tell me what does happen legally when someone wants out. Yeah, so the way we've set it up for our situation is if one of the couples wants to sell, they let the other couple know, and that starts a nine-month clock. And in that period, the first resort would be the other couple having the chance to buy them out and take full ownership of the property. Uh, if they don't want to or aren't able to, the next step would be looking for someone else who wants to buy that, that share of the house or you know a certain share of the house. And this would all be based off uh, an appraisal that we get on the property's value at the time. We set nine months as a window of giving a, enough runway to try those things out without handcuffing anyone too much. And if at the end of that time, you know, no arrangements been able to be made, then the entire property gets sold and we'll split the proceeds. What happens with renovations or major changes or improvements to the property? You know, say um, you guys do renovations to your, uh, your part of the property and your co-owners decide not to. And then later on you sell the house. Like, how do you, how do you divide that equity and, and are there rules around that? There are. Uh, we actually invented something for our arrangement that we called major capital expenditures or an MCE. For example, we upgraded the HVAC in the upper unit to give them some more air conditioning. For that, we actually just split the cost 50-50. But they also did some other renovations to uh, improve the living room, to add some more sliding doors and closets and storage, which they didn't have. And that they paid for and we didn't pay for. And so the amount of money they spent on that was tracked. And what happens is at the time of either sale or at the mortgage renegotiation, the amount of money they've spent accrues annual interest of 3%. Uh, and so uh, when, we, when it's time to sell, the proceeds from the house, will they'll get paid back first in terms of the, the amount that they've invested to recognize that, that capital investment they've put in. And then the remainder of the proceeds will be split between us based off ownership. Last question. Somebody's listening to this right now. Um, they've already heard Leslie and Parmal talk about it. They're interested. What advice would you give them? I would say the, the first step is to get your own house in order as an individual or a couple. 
and get really clear on you know how much money you have, what your budget could be, and what it is that you're looking for, and get prepared to have some really tough conversations up front. Yeah, it's certainly not for everyone, but it can be a really beautiful model for being able to, uh, quite frankly, afford a place in the city uh, as life gets more and more expensive, but also to be able to uh, have that kind of community and to be able to live in a neighborhood. You know, there's a lot of folks who maybe the only thing they could afford to buy if they're, if they're lucky enough to be able to afford to buy something would be a condo. And that might not be the, the lifestyle that they want. For a lot of people, it's great. But for other people, they're looking for something different. And, uh, you know, in a few years, either we'll be visionaries or uh, <laughs> look like idiots for the way we've done it uh, sort of differently on our own. As a concept, co-ownership is not a new thing. Families around the world have been living like this for a long time, even if it seems to you like an unorthodox way to do it. But if you're in Toronto or Vancouver right now and you're listening to this show, I will ask you this. What else are you going to do to afford a nice-sized home in your city? Win the lottery? Right. So, if you're interested, here's basically what you have to do. First... Sit down with your household and determine what you can afford on your own before any partners. This is also a great opportunity to think about how much time you have to contribute to a property and to think about who you might want to live with. Second, find yourself potential partners. Put feelers out to family or friends or, yeah, try the app. Whoever you consider partnering with, just make sure all parties are ready to have open conversations and are prepared to put all fears on the table. As you heard, death, illness, conflict, exit strategies, it has to be everything up front. Third, once you've agreed on some terms, get out into the market. Choose agents, choose lenders and lawyers who are familiar with co-ownership to ensure a smooth process and go buy yourself a home. Some of you right now are still thinking, man, that sounds weird. I can't wrap my head around it. And it took a long time for me as well. It just sounds so ripe for problems. But the one thing Leslie said that really stuck with me is that this is how people build wealth all the time. They pool money and they invest in something. It can be a startup, a small business, an invention, stocks, a timeshare, a racehorse, whatever. And when you look at it like that, it's just a contract. It's just a business deal. It happens every day. And you might even be able to own a damn house in this city, in this economy. Thank you so much to Leslie and Paramal for sharing their expert knowledge with us. You can find more information about their services by visiting husmates.com. And thank you, Jeremiah, for writing into the show with your money problem. It offered me a fascinating look into a world I didn't know existed. If you'd like to share your problems with us, you can email us at hello at itepod.ca or you can call us and leave us a voicemail. The number is 416-935-5935. We don't need your real name. We do need your real numbers. You can find us on social media. We're on Instagram and TikTok at InThisEconomyPod. 
Thank you so much for listening to our first episode, the first of many to come. If you liked this show, if you want more of this show, if you want to share us with anybody, we would be most appreciative. You can do that by liking, by rating, by reviewing, by subscribing, by following, by doing whatever your favorite podcast app asks you to do. I'm your host and executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This episode was written and produced by Stephanie Phillips. The sound design was done by Ryan Clark and the story editing by Ali Graham. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. Together, we make up the Frequency Podcast Network. Thanks once again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week on In This Economy.